I V M. It's the year 440 of the Common Era. In 36 years, the Western Roman Empire, which dominated Europe for nearly half a millennium, will end. Not that you and I care about that. We are deep in the heart of the Indian subcontinent, and we are here to see something much more spectacular. Here, in the plains of the Wain Ganga River, in the far west of the modern Indian state of Maharashtra, is a temple. But it's not like any temple you've seen before. This is not made of massive blocks of carved stone, but instead of hundreds of thousands of baked bricks built into and onto a great hill, so that the building towers hundreds of feet into the air, like the palace of some great god, which, in a way, it is. The bricks are cunningly laid into gorgeous patterns in the walls. Concave diamonds and turrets and stairs and terraces and corridors, creating nooks and crannies decorated with dozens of shrines, full of carvings of joyful demigods depicted in all sorts of poses. Some are playing music, some are laughing, some standing with their arms around their gorgeous partners, others pulling each other's garments down. Some of them are half bird, some half snake, some clothed, some naked. Some wear crowns made of skulls. Others wear fantastic headdresses with jewels and flowers, all are painted in bright colors—red and blue and white and green. All are here to attend on the great god who lives in this temple. This immense building, covered in white and red lime plaster, glowing in the heat of the sun like the peak of the sacred mountain Kailasha, recreated here on Earth. We are standing at the very top of the hill. On the uppermost terrace, in a crowd of royal attendants, all waiting in anticipation with trays of flowers and food, it smells like incense and sweat, which glistens off the rather rotund members of the court, dampening their expensive silks, which flutter in the warm breeze that always caresses the sacred peak. Let's ignore their murmurs and gossip, and instead just look around. Far away, we can see another hill called Ramagiri, Rama's mountain. Where that god king's footprints are worshipped in a complex of shrines and smaller temples, but none of them come close to this one in grandeur. In the distance, we can see a procession approaching, and we can hear roars of welcome from the crowd of sages who generally live around the temple, performing all kinds of oddball austerities. They seem rather crude, though. Even from where we stand, we can see a lot of them are covered in ashes and are more or less naked, with matted hair, like the god whose temple this is. A fair number of them seem rather drunk, but the procession doesn't stop to pay them any heed. Instead, it enters the outer courtyards of the temple and slowly begins to ascend the stairs up to the terrace where we stand. The reason why it's so slow is because of the two figures at the very front of the parade. One is a rather stocky and swarthy man with a bit of a paunch who wears a dhoti of expensive pink silk decorated with gold brocade, clasped with a gorgeously worked belt studded with rubies. His chest is draped with a thick loop of intertwined pearls clasped with gold. His neck glitters with rubies. His wavy, oiled black hair is covered in an elegant jeweled crown. But he pales in splendor next to the elderly woman, who leans ever so slightly on his arm as she carefully climbs the stairs one by one. 
From here, we can see a faint resemblance in their features. Though his lips and nose are heavy and sensuous, somehow on her taller frame, those same features seem elegant and indeed attractive despite her advanced age. Her face is as cold and pale as the winter moon. Her white hair is oiled and piled into a bun on the right side of her head, but the bun is completely covered by rows of fragrant jasmine buds placed over leaves made of gold, piled up in layers upon layers. Its weight is balanced by another elaborate headdress of pearls and jewels on the left side of her head. Her neck, her torso, her waist are all covered thickly in jewels and gold, and though she wears simple white silk, she somehow manages to outshine both the man next to her and the entire crowd of courtiers that we are standing in. As she comes closer, the crowd's chatter slowly stops. She didn't have to say a word. Her mere presence is enough. She is now almost 70, but the Empress Prabhavati Gupta, daughter and sister of the Indian subcontinent's most powerful kings, can still hold a crowd by the sheer force of her personality. We stand spellbound as she advances slowly past us on this uppermost terrace of the immense temple, and she walks reverently into the inner courtyard, followed by attendants holding trays of gifts for the great god. We hear chanting and see the distant flickering of flames and await our turn to enter so we can see and be seen by this merciful deity. His name is Pravareshwara, the highest lord, which is appropriate for the resident of this lofty building. But Pravareshwara also means the lord of Pravara, a reference to the stocky man who accompanied Prabhavati up the stairs, the builder of this vast complex. He is the Vakataka king, Pravarasena II. We, however, know this god by another name, more familiar to us. We call him Shiva. I'm Anirudh Kanesati. Welcome to Echoes of India, a history podcast. The early 5th century was a time of change across most of the Eurasian world. In the Roman Empire, Christianity had been the state religion for a little more than a hundred years, and across its vast ecologically and culturally diverse landmass, political and economic elites had taken to building churches and endowing them with images of the saviour figure Jesus Christus, Jesus the Chosen. This was a way to create a visual and spiritual culture that bound all their subjects into a single state-dominated cult. In the Indian subcontinent, as we've just seen, elites were doing something sort of similar. Though nobody that we know of managed to build anything on the scale of the spectacular temple of Pravareshwara, which you can still see in the tiny, almost forgotten village of Mansur in Maharashtra. Now, why did Pravarasena, king of the Vakatakas, pour all those resources into building this temple, you ask? Before I give you the answer, let me just say Vakataka forever. Now that I've gotten that out of the way, what is the point of building a temple of that scale and size? Just a couple of episodes ago, we saw that his mother Prabhavati and her father, the Gupta Emperor Chandragupta II, were devout worshippers of Vishnu. They use titles like Parama Bhagavata and Atyanta Bhagavad Bhakta, foremost devotees of Vishnu. Why then did Pravarasena choose to build a temple to Shiva instead? 
did he do it because the god showed up in his dream and asked him for a free house like in so many legends of famous temples or did he have a deeper political intention in mind did he get a return on his investment so to speak to answer that question we need to go a little further back in time in fact we need to go so far back that we are now looking at a time when the mad macedonian conqueror alexander invaded south asia and saw banners of indian tribes that he thought worshiped hercules this as we know from episode 1 of season 1 of this podcast was not hercules but rather the hero god vasudeva krishna but who is this vasudeva By the latter half of the first millennium BCE, a tribe called the Vrishnis, who lived around the city of Mathura in the Ganga plains, deified five heroes who may at some point have been flesh and blood humans just like us. Those heroes were Vasudeva Krishna, Samkarshana Balarama, Pradyumna, Shambha, and of course, my namesake Aniruddha. Somehow, the worship of this group of five deities became explosively popular. In fact, they seem to have been rather more popular than the gods that stuffy old Brahmins worshipped, like Indra and Agni. Their worship, at least in the early stages of the cult, didn't seem to need elaborate, expensive sacrifices requiring the hiring of ritual specialists, but instead more of an organic sort of ritual, an earthy sort of thing involving idols, simple shrines made of carved wood and thatch, and a theology based on the idea that these five heroes were savior gods. Over the course of the extraordinary changes of early North India, which saw the unstoppable evolution of Buddhism alongside constant invasions from Central Asia, the cult of these five heroes, the adored ones, the Bhagavata cult, retained its popularity and also began to evolve alongside the great intellectual movements that were shaping the subcontinent. Gradually, Vasudeva and Samkarshana became the two most popular of the five heroes, and slowly Vasudeva himself began to be seen as a great god of mercy. As we have seen, this was a time when established ideas of what Indian society should look like, indeed, even ideas of what languages should be spoken, were being questioned. As the Kushanas declined and new Indian states emerged, they were hiring educated or otherwise influential staff members for the new court. These courts took the idea of the Bhagavata heroes as popular saviors and fused them with the idea of an established if rather obscure Vedic god Vishnu one of the Adityas or sun gods who supposedly helped establish the boundaries of space and time As if this were not enough, this new composite Bhagavan Vishnu was also merged with ideas that were originally associated with the fierce Vedic god Rudra, whose worshippers had come up with a novel new idea called bhakti, personal devotion to a god. Rather than have a transactional relationship with the gods where humans performed sacrifices and the gods in turn maintained cosmic order, this new religion instead declared that the actual duty of a human being was something simpler. the achievement of personal salvation an idea that rudra worshippers may actually have gotten from buddhism and to get this personal salvation according to them all you had to do was pray to the god and perform whatever duties the religious authorities assigned to you so in this new religion if you had been devout enough you would die and go to the sun the sun would burn your body into atoms and you'd stay in the body of aniruddha aniruddha would turn you into spirit and send you to sankarshana the soul and he would finally send you to the ultimate liberator vasudeva himself speaking as this anirudh i can guarantee that i will give you spirits but not necessarily that i can turn you into one 
But the Bhagavata cult was still busily evolving and its master stroke by far was incorporating the ideas of divine kingship that were also evolving in South Asia owing to the turbulent political situation at the time. This complex cocktail of influences is delightfully expressed in the Bhagavad Gita, the song of the Lord, which reached its more or less final form around this time. The blessed Lord said, Among horses know me to be Uchaishravas, who rose out of the ocean. Among lordly elephants, I am Airavata, and among men, I am the king. Most importantly, the blessed Lord here is not Vishnu, but his descent to the mortal plane, his avatara, Krishna. And at this time, since the religion was still evolving, political elites could create new avatars to achieve their objectives. They could identify themselves with the great god Vishnu. They could create images of him that were accepted by both their average subjects and the religious elites of the time, provided of course that they also believed in this brilliant new religion. The man-lion and man-boar forms of Vishnu, Varaha and Narasimha for example, fuse some Vedic ideas with those of popular religion. Archaeologists have discovered prehistoric caves with depictions of lions and boars indicating that they were already being worshipped even before states and courts showed up to appropriate them and forge them into aspects of political power. And so early Vaishnavism as we know it was born. And as we have seen, Chandragupta II and his daughter Prabhavati, the queen mother of the Vakatakas, were able to use it to brilliant effect as a way to build up the legitimacy and right to rule. Now, this Chandragupta II was rather a militaristic sort of chap, and his successor Kumaragupta, who might have only come to the throne with the assistance of his half-sister Prabhavati, was not. Now, Kumaragupta was no less ambitious and forward-looking than his father and sister, though. He realized that state support of Vaishnavism was a great way to consolidate Gupta political influence across the immense, diverse region of northern India, and so spent tons of money building a remarkable new institution. Of course, despite all the new ideas that went into this institution, it was presented by the Gupta Emperor and his creative courtiers as being nothing more than an evolution from the ancient prestigious heritage of the Vedas, just as Vaishnavism presented itself. This institution was something that we are very, very familiar with today, the temple. The reason why this sort of presentation works is because, as scholars have pointed out, the metaphysics of the Vedas is really a system of very creative equations. If you want to melt your brain but also kind of understand what I mean by that, you might want to read the book Ka by the Italian polymath Roberto Colasso, which features an utterly surreal episode where the creator god Prajapati creates links between all of his creations in a futile attempt to defeat death. And many of these links are touched upon later in the book in a spectacular debate between the sage Yagnyavakya and a bunch of others. Actually, let me just digress for a second here because this is really too interesting not to explain with an example. This is a quote from the third book of the Chandogya Upanishad. Om, the sun is the honey of the gods. The sky is the cane from which the honeycomb hangs. The air its honeycomb, the rays its larvae. Its yajus verses are the bees and yajurveda the flower. The immortal amrut is its nectar. See what I mean? There's no limit to the creative permutations and combinations you can come up with, is there? Now in the Vedas, the sacrificial altar is equated with the universe itself, a site where the sacrificer connects through the sacrifice to the immensity of creation. The altar is the meeting ground of the gods and man. 
and so too is the square-shaped altar of the temples that Kumara Gupta was building, pouring the immense resources of the vast Gupta political network into creating across the empire, where he set up statues of Vishnu, the ideal god-king who was identified with the monarch himself. In these temples, radically new forms of worship were invented by ritual specialists paid for by courts wealthy with agrarian and trade surpluses. The Vedic sacrificial ritual, which involved providing offerings to the sacrificial flame, to the winds and the flames in the bellies of the priests, was retooled to become the foundation of temple ritual. Even today, you can still see food being offered to the gods, incense and camphor being burned, and you can even see temples still feeding visitors the same way that Gupta temples did over 1600 years ago. This was a brilliant innovation, but couched in tradition. To paraphrase Michael Willis, the new is not the new, the new is merely presented as being nothing more than the old. Art and religion have a remarkable ability to unite diverse peoples because the yearning for a greater meaning and the ability to understand visual symbols is part of our nature as human beings. Creating these new hubs of social activity where people gather to see gods and interact with them in a way that they never had before, where political elites could now pour in their resources in a game of competition and co-evolution would henceforth define the course of Indian and human history in extremely deep ways. Now that we know all this, Pravarasena's decision to build the immense Pravareshwara temple makes a lot more sense. In building it, he was consciously trying to outdo all his predecessors. Earlier, Vakataka kings were Shiva worshippers using the title of Atyanta Swami Mahabhairava Bhakta, foremost devotee of the great god Bhairava Shiva. He might even have intended to compete with his uncle, the immensely powerful Gupta Emperor Kumara Gupta. He was establishing a religious edifice that expressed his political power and also solidified his control over his kingdom. And of course, he might very well have been personally convinced that his action would bring him salvation. So that sort of answers our question, but also brings up another one. Why Shiva and not Vishnu? To understand this, we need to move away from religion and into the world of politics. As I've pointed out earlier in this season, the Guptas were very much the crazy conquerors of the ancient Indian world and solidified their control of North India not only through religious innovation, but also through the practice of binding together powerful families with marriage. Prabhavati Gupta had come to the Vakataka kingdom as a result of just such a bond, but her husband died young and she eventually became the queen regent on behalf of her young sons. Prabhavati was a brilliant and ruthless monarch in her own right and likely assisted in bringing her half-brother Kumara Gupta to the Gupta throne in the civil war that broke out after the death of their father. She also attempted to further cement the Vakataka and Gupta relationship by marrying her daughter Atibhavati to another brother of hers, a young fellow by the name of Ghatotkacha. Observe what she says about her husband's behavior, which ties into what I was saying in earlier episodes about how important the appearance of virtue and refinement were to the courts of the time. To that great hero, Chandragupta, a son named Katotkacha was born. He pleased the minds of wise men with refined language, and his eyes were like blue lotuses. He pleased holy men with floods of wealth and the people with his fame. When that king had seen his niece, here she is referring to herself, who was like a palace, Lakshmi, he paid his respects to her and married her. Adibhavati's brother Pravarasena, though, was no fan of the Guptas. 
To begin with, the Vakatakas hated the upstart Guptas. Some scholars believe that the Vakatakas had actually been based in Bundelkhand until Samudra Gupta threw them out and they had had to flee south to restart the kingdom in the Vainganga plains. Next, it certainly seems odd that though Pravarasena had two older brothers, both of them died without reigning for very long, allowing their mother to continue her regency until he, the youngest brother, came to the throne. Finally, the fact that his sister had been married off to one of his younger Gupta uncles must have been a matter of great irritation to him, especially given that he was trying to compete with his older Gupta uncle in terms of temple building. Pravarasena's preference for Shiva as opposed to Vishnu needs to be seen in this context. Though the Vaishnavites were absolutely brilliant at associating themselves with both popular belief and political kingship, the Shaivites were not far behind. Though Shaivism took a while to catch on in fancy Brahmin and royal circles, it would soon come to dominate Indian religious history in the first millennium of the Common Era. Some scholars such as Alexis Sanderson actually call this period the Shaiva Age. The true Vaishnava Age, if I may use that term, only started in the late Middle Ages. Whereas Vishnu was a huge deal in the Gupta Empire and never really vanished, this was really Shiva's time. As I said, it was really the Shaivas, the Shiva worshippers, who first invented the concept of Bhakti before the Vaishnavites uh, borrowed it from them. We've talked a lot about early Vaishnavism and now it's time to talk about early Shaivism. Though the date remains controversial, one of the most popular cults of Shiva at this time was the Pashupata cult, the cult of Shiva as a lord of animals, though it very rapidly became much, much more than that. The Pashupatas were supposedly founded by a fellow called Lakulisha, the lord of the club, a stick-wielding ascetic who was supposedly a corpse that Shiva brought back to life. According to Hans Bakker, it's much more likely that the historical Lakulisha was actually a very talented yogi who managed to perform death-defying tricks by controlling his heart rate, for example, and built up his popularity from there. The Pashupatas had some rather odd religious practices. After being initiated, a Pashupata ascetic was supposed to go about naked, covered in ashes, representing the transients of the mortal world. He was also expected to make odd sounds and swear at people, especially rich men and women, so they'd have him thrashed and thus incur sin, which would somehow transfer all the religious merit they had to him. Once he'd done that for long enough, he'd be initiated in stricter meditative rites and secret scriptures, which would eventually ensure that he became a member of Shiva's retinue after death, which seemed a lot more appealing to people than Vaishnava ideas of just praying to Vishnu until he deigned to merge you with himself. Of course, the Pashupata life was difficult and to maintain themselves, they also had to become more socially and politically integrated. They declared that lay people such as Pravarasena could fulfill their religious obligations to Shiva by merely constructing a temple with tanks and gardens for more hardcore ascetics to live in, something that seems strikingly familiar to Buddhism if you think about it. The difference is that by this time, religions were not turning to mass donations and crowdsourcing, but rather to donations by powerful elites who had managed to centralize political and economic power. In ancient India at this time, religions made elites and elites made religions. By collecting Shaivites or Vaishnavites together, making a temple, establishing land grants to the temple, and importing Brahmins to manage the executive and religious duties that all this needed, elites were really inventing India as we would know it today. Empty lands were being given to Brahmins in temples, backed up by the state. The rural economy was widening and deepening. The population began to congregate around new network hubs. India was transforming and Pravarasena, who was trying to consolidate his kingdom in his own name after the death of his mother, was right in the thick of it. 
much of his poetic and artistic patronage far from depicting Shiva as some kind of mad and controllable god as he appears in the early Vedas actually depicts him as a peaceful savior and Pravarsena would claim to be ruling by the grace of Shiva clearly pointing to the fact that Shaivites had also begun to copy Vaishnava ideals just as the Vaishnavas had copied theirs here's an example of Pravarsena doing just this by the command of the illustrious Pravarsena the maharaja of the Vakatakas, who by the grace of Shiva has established the first age on the earth, who was born of Prabhavati Gupta, the daughter of the Rajadhiraja, the illustrious Devagupta, and who is the son of the illustrious Rudrasena, the Maharaja of the Vakatakas. Here Pravarasena describes which lands are being granted and their geographical limits so as administrators know how to demarcate it. The recipients of these gifts are Yagnarya, Bhojarya, Somarya and Dharmarya of the Kaundinya Gotra of the Vajasaneya school. Now he explains that these guys had helped perform certain religious rites and read sacred texts at a festival. Our soldiers and policemen and officers are commanded by this order and let it be known to them that this is done to increase our religious merit, power and victory. As you can see, Pravarasena is giving gifts to Vedic Brahmins, but he's doing it from a splendid new Shaivite temple. He's reordering the rural economy by giving it to ritual specialists who are now dependent on the state for their survival. And so they'll help increase agrarian output because they need to survive, right? The new and the old are combined, the religious and the secular, the spiritual and the state. It's brilliant, at least if you're a Brahmin or a king. If you were a peasant, your life kind of sucked. While Pravarasena was up to all this, his uncle, the aging Gupta Emperor Kumaragupta, also seems to have been aware of the popularity of Shaivism, though he seems to have preferred to build Vaishnava temples instead. His regnal name, Kumaragupta, means guarded by Kumara, Shiva's son, and Kumara and his mount, the peacock, appear on many of the emperor's coins. Kumaragupta's obsession with temple building and focus on using economic surplus to build temples was great in the long run. It ushered in deep economic and political changes across an immense geographical area. But in the short term, it created massive financial problems for the Guptas and left them unable to decisively respond to the immense threats that an empire of the scale always faces. The fact that the Gupta Empire didn't collapse during his reign is because of the efforts of one of the most remarkable individuals of this period. Towards the ending of his reign, with permanent stone temples flourishing across the Ganga plains, issued by the Gupta court and also the courts of all of its vassals, slowly spreading across the subcontinent, leading to deep economic and urbanizing changes, Kumara Gupta seems to have been quite busy resting on his laurels and doing nothing else. But two devastating challenges would soon arise to threaten the Guptas. The first was a massive rebellion of the central Indian tribes once crushed by Samadra Gupta, those whose kings he had forced to serve him as servants. Both Kumara Gupta's heir apparent, perhaps called Chandra Gupta after his grandfather, and his experienced generals were completely unequal to the task of leading the Gupta armies against them. Meanwhile, the emperor's young half-brother, Prabhavati's son-in-law Ghatotkacha, seems to have made his own bid for the throne, likely with the backing of his Vakataka brother-in-law, Pravarasena, who may have wanted nothing more than to cause chaos in the Gupta Empire. After all, Pravarasena had lots to gain from this, because if his brother-in-law won, he would be obligated to him, which was politically great for him no matter how much he actually hated the Guptas. 
in this moment of utter crisis when the guptas were surrounded by enemies in central india when it seemed the gupta empire was going to shatter there appeared a savior of sorts he was a low born man who was so ashamed of his origins that he would never even mention his mother's name through his entire career his father's name though is familiar to us kumara gupta this savior was the son of a concubine or slave girl of the emperor which meant that he had no network or privilege of his own to call on and he may have had to join the gupta army as an officer as his only means of advancement this man was called skanda gupta and he seems to have had more than a little of samudra gupta's blood in him not only did he manage to successfully crush the rebellion in central india but he was rapidly promoted to the de facto rank of commander in chief of the gupta armies his uncle ghatotkacha was defeated and killed and pravarasena who had crossed the narmada to try and help found himself outmaneuvered before he'd even done anything the vakataka king realizing that this was the end of his family's relationship with the guptas tried to salvage the situation he marched on the former capital of ghatotkacha's territories where his sister would otherwise have been forced into another gupta marriage and brought her back south to his great palace which he had very modestly named pravarapura this triumphant skanda gupta was now powerful enough to seize the gupta throne in his own right his low birth be damned However, he still had his senior half brother, the heir apparent Chandragupta, to deal with. Before he could make his move though, his hand was forced. Nearly 400 years ago, Chinese interference in Central Asia had sparked off immense migrations of nomadic peoples who moved like dominoes all the way across Eurasia, where combined with the effects of global cooling, they had attacked the Roman Empire in search of food and tribute in waves until its western half eventually collapsed in crisis. A series of similar tribes also invaded India as we know, the Shakas and Kushanas for example. but the worst were yet to come the violent city destroying fast moving armies of the nomadic huns had brought rome to its knees and now relatives of theirs were heading towards india skanda gupta like his father was named after shiva's son the war god skanda kartikeya and unlike his father he would soon have to prove that he deserved that title I want to hear what you think of Echoes. Keep in touch with me on Twitter at @akanisetti that's a k a n i c t t i or tag me in an Instagram story. Just search for my name. If you like this podcast, you could also leave us a rating and a review. And don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can listen to us on the IVM podcast app or ivmpodcast.com. And while you're at it, follow us on Twitter and Instagram as well at @ivmpodcast.